Good morning. I'll be reading from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thank you so much, Crystal, for reading for us this morning. Well, if you guys couldn't tell, that's my little brother, Tucker. And I say little, I mean, we're basically twins, if you, if you hadn't noticed that. Um, although some people think we do share a voice box, but that's about the end of our similarities. I wonder sometimes where that height was for me. Um, I probably would have been a professional athlete if that had happened. So I'm glad to be here instead. But I am so thankful to have him here this morning and to get to worship together. And I think that's just a little microcosm of what Christmas is for a lot of us. It's a family time. It's a time of joy. It can be a time of sorrow, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And it's a time where we recenter ourselves on these big themes of Scripture. And as we've been covering the season of Advent, we've been looking at these words that are typically associated with the weeks of Advent. So you have four weeks of Advent, and you have hope, love, peace, and faith. And this week, we're going to talk about peace. And as the final week of Advent, before Christmas gets here, the The word that we've reserved is peace. And it's one, if you've been reading any of the gospel accounts, it shows up all over the place. Jesus is going to be the prince of peace. And you've got to wonder, as you read these stories, why were they so fixated on finding peace? Okay, when we say the word peace, we mean something a little bit different than they do. And I mean that in two senses. The first one is that we mean peace in terms of internal peace. Because one of the marks of our moment is that we have psychologized everything. We take the meaning of words to primarily mean what's going on in our heads. That's not always a bad thing, but it's not what they would have meant by peace. Secondly, if you would have asked somebody before about 150 years ago if they were living in peace they would have had to return to you another question. Who's king? Because in the ancient world, all the way up until the founding of America, essentially, who your king was determined whether or not you would have peace. Because your life, even though you had never met the king, you had never seen the king, you didn't even know what the king was up to, they directly impacted whether or not your country was at war, 
how many taxes you were going to pay, whether or not you had any kind of safety, whether or not you owned your land, whether or not you could work in the trade that you had trained. Whoever the king was determined whether or not you were going to have peace. Now, when we mention kings and Christmas, it's almost like a song is going to come on. Right? If I say kings, we typically think of the song, We Three Kings. And as you heard in the reading this morning, we're going to talk about the Magi. And I just, I'm not, on a, I'm not really on a personal crusade here to destroy Christmas songs, but if I had to pick one to rip on for a minute, it would be We Three Kings. And it's just for this reason. There probably weren't three of them, they weren't kings, and they weren't from the Orient. But other than that, it is a wonderful, tremendous Christmas song. But actually, I have one more thing against We Three Kings. If you look at the lyrics of We Three Kings, We Three Kings of Orientar, bearing gifts we've traveled so far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And the chorus is all about the star. Until you get to the second or third verse, which nobody sings, you never understand what it is that they were looking for. If you just knew We Three Kings, aside from the historical inaccuracies, you would have no idea what this star signified. You would have no idea what compelled these wise men, these magi, to leave their home to travel hundreds of miles to find what they were looking for. And so what Matthew does in this story is he actually gets to the bottom of these three kings. And you'll see in a moment, they're, they're not three kings, but they are three very important figures, and they do tell us something about the true king. So let's start out and do a little investigative work. Who are these guys, and what are they doing in our story? So if you start in Matthew chapter 2, it just says, wise men, that's what it says here in my translation, sometimes it just says magi. That's because the Greek word here is the word magi. It's where we get the word magician. Those are the same kinds of words. And it says magi came from the east. That's all the background we really get in this text. But if you, if you look back at the way that this word is used in contemporary literature, we can find out a few things about these guys. First of all, they were probably Babylonians. So if you think Babylon, you think Old Testament, Babylon comes in, they conquer Israel, they are the reigning power when Nebuchadnezzar is king. Think about like Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Think about Israel being besieged and destroyed in 586 BC. That's the Babylonians. These guys are from Babylon. Sometimes we talk about them being Persian, which is another word to say they are from the kingdom of Babylon. The other thing that we know, one of the commentators talks about their study. So these, these are wise men, but they have a particular kind of wisdom that they are skilled and specialized in. The, the, one of the commentators says these, these magi were probably members of a priestly caste in Persia. They were of high rank. They were probably Zoroastrians. They were called fire worshipers in the Persian. And they were given to astrology, studying the stars and the movements in the sky. There is no evidence for the tradition that they were three in number, but the notion that they were kings probably arises from a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah, just shortly after and during the middle of this Babylonian rise to power, Isaiah prophesies that when the, when the king of kings comes, when the Messiah comes, Kings and nations and rulers will come 
and bow before him. And these wise men, these magi, are the first of a long train of people who come and bow before Christ. In fact, it's probably a little while after Jesus has been born when this story happens because we know they come and find him in a house and we know their, their journey was a long journey. They are the first Gentiles who come and bow down before Jesus. Even as a baby, they come and they say, this is the king we've been looking for. Here's another thing about these guys. They were servants of the kings of Babylon and Persia. They were part of the royal entourage. So what they did all day, every day, they studied the skies, they discussed the movements, they talked about prophecies, and they spoke wisdom to the king. They were well acquainted with what kings were like. They were well acquainted with royalty and royal lines. They knew what it was like for a king to come to power and rule well or rule badly. They wouldn't have been intimidated at all when they met with King Herod because King Herod is a tiny little king compared to the king that they served. In fact, later in history, this cast of people was in charge of crowning the kings of Persia. So they are elite. They are part of the entourage. They would have come with a giant group of people. Some people estimate a thousand people in a caravan coming with these three men or more to visit Jesus. This is a big deal rolling into a little Judean town. There's one more thing I want to point out about these magi. They were earnestly seeking to find out what this star was pointing to. So it's, it's typical sometimes to read these texts and think, okay, these guys, they're astrologers, so we don't really believe in that. They're Gentiles, so we already have our ears perked up that they might not be the good guys in this story. But it turns out that they had been studying the stars and they saw some kind of unique movement. And there are so many pages written about what this could have been. Is it Saturn and Venus that came together? What, whatever it is, was it a meteor shower? Whatever it is, they looked and they said, this is so unusual and this is so spectacular that we believe it is a sign from the heavens that a king has been born. And so they came from over 800 miles away to find what this star could be pointing to. See, they were earnest, sincere seekers of what God was doing. Sure, they may not have had all the religious lingo that a Jew would have had, they may not have had access to all the prophecies that we do in the Old Testament that point to Christ. But what they did know was that God was doing something, and they had to go be a part of it. So we're going to take these guys as a model for what we should do to respond at Christmas. And I'll give you succinctly what they teach us. They teach us to look for what God is doing, to always be on the lookout for what God might be doing to get your attention. Secondly, once they see what God is doing, they go for it. They pick up their bags, they take everything they have, their treasures, their entourage, and they go and they find what God is leading them to. Third, they give what they have. At the end of this story, this is the most famous thing about the Magi, is they offer gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, expensive royal gifts. Once they get there, they're prepared to give everything they have to this king. And lastly, they fall on their faces and worship. They fall on their faces and they worship. So the question is, 
What kind of king could compel these magi to do those things? What kind of king did they think Jesus must be to come to pick up their lives, to follow him, to open their treasures, to bow down, to worship him? And Matthew gives us a template. If you look in the middle of your chapter 2 in your Bible, in mine it's set out because it's a prophecy, and in some Bibles it is, some, some it's not, but beginning in verse 6, there's a prophecy that Matthew quotes. And I want to give you this hint because a lot of us are going to start Bible reading plans in January, and one of the first things you're going to read is the book of Matthew, if you don't start Old Testament or if you do both at the same time. And here's a, here's a tip for reading the book of Matthew. Every time he quotes something from the Old Testament, there's more there than what he quotes. He's using a shorthand. So Matthew quotes Scripture dozens of times. And if you have time, what you should do is when he quotes a Scripture, go back and read the surrounding chapter that he quotes. Because he'll give you a little tagline. So here he says, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, but from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We're going to go back to the book of Micah for a few minutes and look at what, what's said in this chapter. This is in Micah chapter 5, close to the end of your Old Testament. This would have been a person who was alive during the time that Israel was about to be conquered. He would have seen the rise of Babylon in its height. And he says this in chapter 5 to the people of Israel. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. This is speaking of Jerusalem. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Listen to what he says here. And he shall stand and shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This ruler that's coming will be their peace. Let's take this in two chunks. The first one, he is going to be a ruler who shepherds his people in the strength of the Lord. This person who comes is not going to be somebody who makes their own uh, kingship. They're going to be somebody who inherits the kingship of God. So this is God's pre-planned, authorized ruler of the universe. This is not somebody who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. This is somebody that God actually orchestrated to become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what the people in the first century got that sometimes we forget is the message of Christmas is political. Now, they would have used the word political a little bit differently than we would, but you see, every person who's in power in the Christmas story is terrified at the announcement that Jesus is the king of the Jews. We think king in this kind of ethereal, spiritual sense, but they thought there's only one king in Judea, and it's Herod. There's only one king in the Roman Empire, and it's Caesar. To say that Jesus is king is to make a rival claim against the powers at be in their day. 
And it's the same thing for us. We don't have a king now, but we do have powerful people. And when we say that Jesus is our Lord, he is our king, he is our savior, that means that those people are not. This is an exclusive claim. He is king. And that puts every other king on notice. So we first see this, and and you see it most acutely, in Herod's reaction. So if you keep your finger in the book of Micah, and we go back over to Matthew for a moment, when the wise men come, they enter the land of Judea, and they think to themselves, where's the most likely place for a king to be? So they go to Jerusalem, which is the capital of that region, and they go to the palace. That's where you find kings. And they do find a king, and his name is Herod. And I'm going to give you a little background on this guy. Herod the Great, and there's a bunch of other Herods after him, but Herod the Great is the first in a line of kings. And you're going to see them all through the Gospels. His kids divide up the kingdom, and they're also called Herod. And they have different kingdoms and names, but this is the grandfather of the kingdom. And you could search all over literature and not find a more fascinating person than Herod. Herod was a young military officer, in, he is partly of Jewish descent. He's actually what they call a Hasmonean, which other Jews would have said is kind of not the pure line of Israel. But he's a military man, and he rises through the ranks in the Roman Empire, and he becomes a well-known military commander. And he sides, if you've ever read Shakespeare and you get into Julius Caesar, you realize there's this big war, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and you have all these generals and Brutus and all these people competing. Well, Herod throws in his lot with the wrong guy. And that should have been the end of his career, except he goes to Julius Caesar when he wins out, and he says, did you see how loyal I was to all these other guys? I could be that loyal to you if you'll just keep me in power. And he snakes his way into being in favor in the Roman Empire. And what the Romans did was they would set up these rulers in certain regions who had two jobs. Make sure that nobody revolts and give us all the tax money that you can get. And so that's what Herod did. He pacified a bunch of uh, revolts among the Jews, make sure that nobody's in the headlines in Rome from his province, and he sent them tons and tons of tax money. So as you can imagine, he didn't have great relationships with the Jews. They would have seen him as somebody who is profiting off of them to curry favor with Rome. He's not the king of the Jews. Rome gave him that title, but to any Jew they would say, he's not the king of the Jews. We're waiting for a king of the Jews. Well, when you rule like Herod does, you run into a lot of problems. And the more people that you make angry and the more rebellions you put down, the more tax dollars that you raise, the more enemies you make. And later in life, Herod became very paranoid and very insecure about his power. In fact, one of the, one of the historians of the time says, if you could describe Herod in three words, it would be tyrannical, ruthless, and cruel. <laughs> so I'll tell you a little story that illustrates this. When Herod is, he gets sick, he's about 70 years old, he gets sick, and he's about to die. And Josephus, who's a historian, says he calls his sister and his brother-in-law, and he says, I'm going to die quickly, and I know that death is imminent, but what principally troubles me is that I will die without being lamented. He says, what's on my mind right now is that I'm not going to receive 
the kind of adulation at my funeral that kings should receive. So this is the kind of guy Herod is. This is what he does. He arrests all the prominent people in Jerusalem, and he puts them in the Hippodrome, which is a giant theater. And he tells his sister and brother-in-law, when I die, I want you to kill all these people so there will be some mourning in Israel after I'm gone. That's the kind of guy he was. I want, you to, I want you to do that so that at least there will be tears when I pass away in Israel. Now, his sister decided not to do that, and they let all these people go. But that's the kind of paranoia that comes with worldly power. Herod is a picture of the kind of person who has used every tool at their disposal to hoist themselves into the power of the world. This is the kind of power that doesn't have a moral dimension to it. It's purely pragmatic. Do what you've got to do to get what you want. That's Herod's kind of leadership. So when the Magi come and they say, we heard that a king of the Jews has been born, and we want you to tell us where he is. Herod, it says, is troubled. This is kind of a minor way to put this. This is the word for terrified. Herod is terrified. There's an uprising. There's people that have already heard about it before him. His reign among the Jews is already insecure, and now this person is truly a Jew, truly a son of David. So Herod, being crafty, says, oh, well, I, I want you guys to go find him, and then I want you to come back and tell me where he is, because I, too, want to go worship. But you know the rest of the story. Herod doesn't want to do that. He wants to get rid of all the kids in the area that are of that age so that he can get rid of a rival king. One of the things that Matthew does in this story is he contrasts Jesus' kingship with Herod's kingship. Think about this. Herod had everything. He had everything. He's one of the greatest builders in antiquity. He, when there was a famine in the land, he took the jewelry just from one of his palaces and melted it down and paid for everyone to eat. This guy is crazy wealthy, crazy powerful. He is dignified in all the ways the world can give. And Jesus is none of those things. Think about how humiliating the story of Christmas is for Jesus. Think about this for a minute. He was born in a town way too small to produce a king. Bethlehem is so insignificant, actually, that Micah, in the chapter before the prophecy we read, has listed all the prominent towns that have been destroyed by the Assyrians. And he doesn't even mention Bethlehem. It's not even big enough to see on a map until you are zoomed in so far that you can see the little township of Bethlehem. He's born in a town that actually no one cares about. They have to make sure that you know what they're talking about by giving the region. Right? This is like when, when, people ask, when you ask somebody where they're from and they're from a small town, typically they give you an area first because they assume you're not going to know what town they're from. I'm, from. I'm from eastern Oklahoma. So when I talk to our, our friends in Oklahoma City, I say we're out by Lake Eufaula because that's a better way of saying you, if you haven't been there, it's kind of in this area. And they say, oh, I, I know Lake Eufaula. Okay, oh, okay we're, we're, we're in Carlton Landing. Oh, I know Carlton Landing. But in Bethlehem, it would be like we're from kind of around Jerusalem. You're like, oh, what's, what side of it? Okay, we're on the northeast side. Oh, okay, where, where, where are you from? We're from a little town of Bethlehem. I think I've heard of that before. They have to give another name here to clarify where he's from. He's also born to parents who are too poor to possibly raise a king. When Mary and Joseph, um, so they are social outcasts because of how Jesus is 
born. But they're also in a situation where when they take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, they go and there's a ritual in Leviticus chapter 12 that you're supposed to do when you bring a child to be dedicated. And one of the things you're supposed to do is you're supposed to make an offering for that child before the Lord of a one-year-old lamb. But when Mary and Joseph go in Luke chapter 2, when they go to the temple, they don't offer a lamb. They offer two doves. And if you go back into the book of Leviticus, there's a provision. If you can't afford a lamb, God gives you the option of offering two doves instead of one. So here's Jesus coming into his father's house, coming into the system that points to him. And one of the commentators says he was, he was circumcised by parents who were too poor to even offer the correct offering. Even children could catch these birds in their hands to make as an offering, but Mary and Joseph were too poor to even buy the required sacrifice. Now, I think the significant thing about this is that God was providing his own lamb. Mary and Joseph may have been too poor to offer that to God, but God had already selected his own lamb. And the day that Jesus was, was brought in to be dedicated, God had provided his own sacrifice. There's a lot of power in that. that God had already provided his own sacrifice. But in the moment, think about what people would have thought. You're a king. Your parents can't even afford the right sacrifice. He also died a death too weak. Think about this. He was crucified like a criminal. He was treated like he was a troublemaker. He was given a show trial that was not, that were false witnesses and lies against him. He was not treated with any dignity. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was given kind of a fake robe and a crown of thorns to say, this person will never amount to anything. You come up against the power of Rome, this is what happens to you. But remember what Micah said? This king is not a worldly king. He doesn't operate with the levers of power that you find in the world. He is a king who depends on God alone. If you imagine what Jesus was like as a human being, he's wandering around, he didn't have money, he didn't have power, he didn't have prestige, he had the crowds following him basically because he fed them a couple of times. And then he dies a criminal's death, and his apostles start to proclaim, he is the king of the universe. Later in the book of Hebrews, it says, he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He is before all things, it says in Colossians 1, and in him, everything holds together. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. He is the beginning. He is the head. He is preeminent. Everything in the universe, every molecule belongs to him. This is a different kind of power. It's a different kind of king. It's a different kind of system than the world could ever have dreamed of. There's another contrast in this story that I want to point to before we get back to the prophecy. When Herod hears about this king, look at what he does. I'm back in Matthew chapter 2, and it says in verse 4, when Herod heard this, he assembles all the, the scribes and the chief priests. These, these would have been the seminary professors. These guys are the theological nerds who know everything about the Hebrew Scripture. And when Herod assembles these guys, he says, I want you to tell me where the Messiah is going to be born. Bam, immediately they know. Micah chapter 5, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they tell the wise men, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's six miles from here. Go check it out and come back to see us. But let's step back for a minute. So you're telling me that these guys knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. 
You've got wise men who've come from 800 miles away saying there's a giant solar and, and, and cosmic event that's pointing to a king who's been born here, and we want you to tell us where he is. And those guys say, it's six miles away, check back when you're done. They had all the religious knowledge, they had all of the outer devotion, and they were completely devoid of worship. They wouldn't even make the couple-hour trip to go check out what God might be doing in Bethlehem. That's how dead these people were on the inside. They gave lip service to what God was doing. They had a tradition. They had security in their rituals. But they actually didn't want to be involved in what God might be doing if it rocked their religious boat. These people are the ones that Jesus constantly comes up against in the Gospels. You people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. These people knew intellectually what God was capable of doing, but when they saw it before their own eyes, they didn't want anything to do with it. So on the one hand, you've got Herod, who has strong-armed his way into power. On the other hand, you've got these scribes who have projected a religious image, but when God is standing right before them, they don't want anything to do with him. And then you have the Magi. You have these people that are not religious in the Jewish sense. They're not powerful in the way that Herod was. They're servants of kings, and they want to find the person who's bringing peace. They come, they ask about him, they go before him, and they are overjoyed when they find him. If you go back to that prophecy, I want to look at the second half now. His people will dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. See, what I mentioned at the beginning is peace depends on who your king is. It depends on what kind of king they're like. And the Magi were looking for a king who could bring eternal peace. Their story actually goes back a long way. It's not incidental that they come from the east. Remember in the very beginning of the Bible. So Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and which direction do they go? Do you remember? They go east of Eden. And then their son Cain slays his brother Abel, and he is banished into the land of Nod. And the word Nod means wandering. He's banished to the land of wandering. And can you guess what direction the land of wandering is from where Adam and Eve were banished? East. And humanity begins to go east, both physically and metaphorically. And when you get to the story of Ezekiel's temple... The temple face, faces to the east, and it has over the doorway, the Lord is there, because they're expecting that at some point, somebody will come from the east back to Jerusalem to bring them peace. What the Magi represent is everyone who has been wandering who's coming back to God. Do you remember what it was like before you were saved? Some of you have been Christians for almost your whole life, and certainly you've had temptations and things like that, but for those of you that came to Christ later, do you remember what it was like to not know Christ? Sure, on your good days, and when you were distracted, and when you were suppressing everything, you were doing great. But do you remember those conversations with yourself, the instability, the anxiety, the insecurity of not knowing who holds your future? Do you remember what it was like to know that you were responsible for determining what happened to you? That's a weight that nobody likes to carry. Do you remember what it was like to feel guilt that you can't get out? You can distract yourself if you want, or you can make yourself feel better by talking to people who give you the things that you want to hear, but 
When your head hits the pillow and you're just with your own thoughts, the guilt that you know you need to get rid of. Jesus is the kind of king who puts an end to all wandering. He puts an end to guilt. He puts an end to turmoil. He puts an end to questions about the future. He puts an end to eternity. He is the peace of his people. So the Magi come, and they bow down, and they get on their faces, and they worship him. Christmas is about worship. And if you read the book of Matthew from start to finish, you'll see a trend. Everyone who sees Jesus for who he is worships him. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is the one who we put our trust in. He is our joy. He is our security. He is the person who has died for us, who will meet us at the end of our timeline here on earth. He is the person who has secured the blessings of God for all of the people who put their trust in him. He is the king they were looking for, and he's the king you are looking for. For those of you that trust in him, you know how sweet it is to be a part of his kingdom. A kingdom that can't be shaken, a kingdom that nothing that's been given to you can be taken away in eternity, a kingdom where everything unjust will come untrue in the end. And we're waiting for that day. So the wise men look for what God is doing. When they see God moving, they don't get caught up in their former life. They don't get caught up in the things that they were putting their trust in. They go and find him. They fall on their faces. They open up their treasures, and they worship him. That's the response of Christmas. And you've got to make time in the next week to remember that. That's what Advent's all about, is it's a looking backwards and a looking forward, saying, I'm not going to let this season pass without doing what these magi did, worshiping Christ. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. I've put the communion elements right here, and I'm going to take these the top trays off. And in a moment, we're just going to spend a, a little bit of time, come up, grab the communion elements. As we do that, we too are saying, we will leave everything else behind and come and seek after Christ. So come, take the elements, go back to your seats, and in a moment, I'll come back up and we'll take these together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift of remembering your goodness to us during Christmas. Father, help us not to be like Herod. Help us not to be like the scribes. Help us not to be like the chief priests. Help us to be like the magi who drop everything and follow where you're leading. Father, give us clarity this morning about what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to see, even in roundabout ways, what it is that you might be doing in our lives and how we can be a part of it. Father, we pray that uh, we would have the faith and, and the confidence in you to look silly in the eyes of the world, but to bow down and worship you. So, Father, glorify your Son now as we share this meal together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.